Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Josh Barker with Remax in Redding, California. Last year, he closed 453 transactions with a total sales volume of $132 million. His average sales price was $291,000, of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers. He has a 15-member team, seven buyer specialists, one assistant listing agent, two escrow coordinators, two listing coordinators, one personal assistant inside sales agent, one marketing director, one director of operations, and one listing agent team leader. Josh Barker is the team leader of the Josh Barker Real Estate Advisors. He's been an agent for 18 years. He's sold over 2,500 homes in his career. In this call, Josh talks about selling 25 homes his first year in real estate and how he got that quick start. 50% of his business is by repeating referrals from past clients and sphere of influence and why it gets better every year. 20% of his business is from Zillow and what he's doing to make that happen. 20% of his business is from sign calls and the scripts he uses during the call. How Josh personally listed and sold 220 homes last year and why he stays in production and signs 80% of his listing appointments. Why excellent customer service leads to more referrals. His simple annual marketing plan for past clients and sphere of influence that results in 10% of his database buying or selling with him each year. Why he created a top 100 inner circle referral group. How he stays in front of them and his script and approach to referrals. How he developed his highly leveraged producer's model team concept that is a hybrid between the team leader as a sole producer and the team leader as a pure manager. Why prospecting is the major driver of his very profitable business. Team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Josh. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited to be here today. Hey, Josh. It's great to have you here. Josh, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. I'm 41 years old now. I've been in the business for almost 18 years. So prior to real estate, I was actually in the military. I was in the Marines for four years. So you know, I, I laugh, but I, I really have never had a real, what I would consider to be a serious job prior to real estate. I mean, I got out of the Marines. I went to college. I worked part-time for a satellite company a few days a week to help offset some of the expenses of going to college and then got into the real estate business at 23. So quite honestly, my, my younger life story is probably boring in comparison to some other folks. Why did you decide to get into real estate? You know, I grew up around real estate. My father was a real estate broker. My grandfather was a real estate broker. So I was the victim of many hours of endless 
sales tape driving around in the vehicles. So <laughs> I, w- I would say that whether I liked it or not, I was probably being immersed into the sales profession and predisposed to it. So when I got out of the service and wanted to pick a career, I thought about who in the world make the best money for the work to put out and whether it be real estate or other sales as well. I just think salespeople are people that can make the most money. So I chose real estate. When you first got started, let's go back for a minute. When that very first year, do you, did you have a fast start or a slow start? In comparison to who, I think would probably be a fair way of answering that. But in my opinion, it was an okay start. I was very fortunate. Uh, a friend of mine had a real estate company here in Reading that I went to work for before day one. When I made the decision to get into real estate, he had given me a some sales training tapes, and I was immediately getting immersed into the process of selling homes. So if I remember correctly, it was somewhere between 25 and 35 homes that I was able to sell in the first year. Wow. We have a few people that are listening that are brand new, and they'd like to know, what did you do that first year to close 25 to 30 homes? Getting first into the business, I worked with a lot of buyers day one. I mean, that was the fastest way to generate income. So I was taking ad calls that were coming into the office. And I was immediately setting appointments and going out and showing these properties as quickly as possible. So I, I don't remember the exact percentage, but I suspect it was about 75% or so of our transactions for buyer transactions and the rest were listings. But as you can imagine, 23 years old trying to list homes when you look like you're about 18, <laughs> you know, it was uh, a little challenging in that first year to say the least. So what year was that that you got started? 1999 is when I got started. And uh, in our market, the market was still down. In fact, I remember listing properties in 1999 where the seller had claimed that the price I was selling it for was the same price they had paid for it back in 1991. So our market had been flat for a long period of time. It hadn't taken off yet, which I actually consider to be fortunate. I, I got to learn the business uh, before it, you know, it heated up in the early 2000s. How many homes did you sell last year and what was your sales volume? We closed 453 transactions last year. Sales volume was just a little bit over $132 million. Wow, that's spectacular. Congratulations. Thank you. Just out of curiosity, do you happen to know how many homes you've sold in your career? Looking at a piece of paper here, I think on Zillow it says something like 2,500, but I suspect it's probably more than that. I would think it's probably between 3,000 and 3,500 over the last 18 years um, that we sold. I have never really paid close attention to the total number. I do focus these days much more on what we're getting done each year. And so you probably don't know what the sales volume is. I really don't know. Maybe I should, but I never really paid attention You know, over the last 18 years what the total amount was. But we live in a lower price community. Our average sales price in the market is about 260. Our average sales price as a company is close to 290. Probably a lot. I would imagine it's over half a billion or something like that. Let's let everybody know where you are. So where is Redding, California? Redding, California is about two and a half hours north of Sacramento at the very top of the Valley of California. So if you could imagine being at the top of a valley and on three sides of us, we have these amazing tree and snow-covered mountains all around us. We are right before you start getting into the mountains in Northern California. Just a beautiful place. What's the population there? Well, the county is roughly 145,000, and, and I sell most of the county. Um, and then in our city that I live in, which is Reading, population's roughly around 94 to 95,000. Could you please describe your current real estate market? Well, the average sales price in our market is roughly 260. 
the average home that you'll get for that price is a three-bedroom, two-bath home, roughly 1,600 to 1,700 square feet with either a two-car, three-car garage built in 1990 or newer. So that's what the product represents. Our market is still not back to the selling prices of the previous peak in 2006. You know, we're roughly 15% below that at this point. Our expectation is we're going to see appreciation of another 4% or so this year. You know, even though we live in California, everybody thinks, oh my gosh, it's going to be crazy high prices, but um, that we don't live in those bigger cities where you see those amazing numbers uh, taking place. How far away are you from the ocean? If I were to travel directly west, it would take me, well, I've gotten over there on my motorcycle a few times in about two hours. So it's a pretty mountainous terrain. You have to go up over a mountain range to drop down to the ocean there. So it takes a few hours. If I were to jump in an airplane, I could be over there in 30 minutes. Well, Josh, let's do this. Let's jump into your business and lead generation. That's what a lot of people want to know about. So could you tell us what are your top three lead sources? Well, number one, for sure, is just our past clients and center of influence. You know, we've put a lot of time and energy into having strong relationships with our past clients and and the sphere of influence that comes from that. And that represents roughly 50% of our business, both on the buying side and also on the listing side. The second one right now is the tie between Zillow and SignCall. So when you're listing a lot of properties, which we do, it does generate a lot of buyer inquiry and seller inquiry into the office, which we take advantage of, convert into business. Um, And Zillow, probably for the same reasons, because we have such a uh, revolving inventory, we're able to constantly have pretty good exposure on Zillow, which, as you know, is the site that most of these buyers are using and sellers are using to gather information. Well, let's dive deep into each of those. Let's start with past clients, sphere of influence, your repeat and referral business. You said it's around half the business currently, and so that's representing over 200 transactions a year. Let's first talk about your database. How big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? Uh, It's roughly 2,500 at this point today, 2,500 past clients and center of influence that we communicate with on a quarterly basis. I do have a, what we call an inner circle, which is a folk that I communicate with on a monthly basis. It's a list of roughly 100 people. And those folks are people that um, have their own databases of clients that they communicate with. And we need each other's services on a more regular basis. So it's a big part of what we do. Do you keep these folks in a database? And if so, what software is that? Yes, we keep them in a database. I use a program called Salesforce. That's what we run our company on, and uh, transaction management, listing management, as well as our uh, client relationship management. So it's all done together in that system. Been on that program for about four years now. We used to use a product. I don't know if any of the agents on this call will remember, but there used to be something called Agent Office. And it was an old archaic system that wasn't even online. You had to download it to your, you know, to your tower or whatever back in the day. But um, you know, we moved to the internet about five years ago. And you chose a software program that's not real estate specific. You chose Salesforce, a more generic product. Did you have to customize it a lot? And how's it working for you? It worked out great. You know, one of the things that I like about it is that it is customizable. You know, I'm a huge advocate that when you pick products or solutions for your company, they need to be able to be modified to meet the requirements of your team or your company. Some of these static CRMs, you have to modify what you do to fit their program. And and really, you can't get to max scale if you're having to modify just to meet the software needs. Were you able to set up that customization yourself, or did you have to bring a consultant in to help? Well, initially, um, they offer an enterprise with, I don't remember how many hours it was of consulting, but I think we probably got 10 or 12 hours of consulting. It's a pretty easy system. I don't mean to say that if it's not easy for some people. I'm so sorry. But for us, it wasn't that hard to figure out. My office manager figured out how to modify the fields and 
if you've got a pretty good understanding of a program like Excel or something like that, although it's different, it's got the same principles. It's just about where you move fields and organize your information, that kind of stuff. Let's now talk about how you're staying in touch with your database. Now, you mentioned that this group is two parts. There's a part that's receiving a quarterly marketing program and then the inner circle that's doing monthly. Let's start with the quarterly group, the larger group, the 2,500. Could you tell us what you're doing, say, on an annual basis with those folks? Well, that person, that example, they would be receiving four separate phone calls from our company per year, touching base, asking if they have any questions regarding real estate, financing, repairs on their home, anything like that, that we could offer assistance for. In addition, that person would receive a monthly market update from me which I write a market update for our area each month, and then I provide it to our clients either through mail or uh, email. So they're getting something from us once a month, but they're also talking with us once a quarter, and that has generated consistently a good return of roughly 10%. When you say 10%, do you mean that 10% of that list is converting into a transaction? Yeah, 2,500 past client center of influence will transact roughly 250 transactions from it. And that's by making four phone calls per year and then also having this monthly market update either by email or mail. Right. And I would add that over a period of 18 years. So, you know, you can't do it for six months to a year and expect to get the same result. I mean, this is over time being very consistent, which is one thing that I'm very consistent at is communicating with our past clients. Did you ever drop the ball early on where you were not communicating with your folks? Never. So you can't tell us what to do if somebody has dropped the ball and needs to reinitiate or reignite that relationship? Well, I, I wouldn't have firsthand experience, but I could offer a recommendation to call them and say, I'm sorry, I dropped the ball. And with your permission, I'd like to assist you with any questions or needs you have in real estate. So I would get past whatever that mind block is and move on from it. Those four phone calls that you're making each year, that's once a quarter, once every three months. That's a lot of calls. How are you structuring those calls? Are you trying to make a certain number of calls each day? Yeah. So, you know, it depends how big the list is. So obviously the number of contacts has gone up over time as the database has grown. You know, I'd have to bust out the calculator to see the answer to this. Give me one second here and I will. Divided by at least 66 days, roughly 35 to 40 contacts a day. And understand that we don't actually talk to each one of them because they don't always pick up their phone. So for the ones that don't pick up their phone, we do leave voicemail. So that's how we're able to actually get those amount of contacts done in a day. And how long would it take you to make 35 to 40 contacts slash voicemail in a day? It averages roughly three and a half to four hours a day of phone calls. How many of those, let's say it's 40 call outs, how many of those are being answered and how many are voicemails? On average, we get a pickup rate of roughly 65%. You know, and over the years, it's become more and more challenging. It sounds like it's about two-thirds are picking up the phone and one-third is going to voicemail? Correct. Yeah, and we're trying to improve that by, uh, you know, getting more and more cell phone numbers. I mean, over the years, as you know, people are walking away from their landlines. And it's not necessarily appropriate to be contacting people at their work business. So we're, over time, trying to make sure we move our database to all cell phones because uh, the likelihood of those being changed in the future is, is less likely. Ah, and how do you go about doing that? Do you just request that when you get a hold of them at their house? Do you say, hey, can I call you at your cell phone next time? <laughs> no, although that would be a, a way of doing it. Another way of doing it, too, is to say, hey, 
I was going to text you guys some information on something that's taking place here in town. What's the best number to do that? Well, let's talk about what you say during the call. You're making four calls per year. Are you giving the same message each time? What are you saying when you call up? Well, obviously, every time you talk to him, there's notes being entered into our CRM. So if little Johnny broke his arm, the next time we talk to him three months later, it might be a conversation starting off with, hey, last time we talked, little Johnny broke his arm. How's he doing? And then after getting updates on, you know, whatever got left from that previous phone call, then we say, you know, Josh always wants to reach out and be your resource and source for any questions real estate related. Do you guys have any questions that we can help you with at this point? And, you know, either they'll have a question or they won't. It's just that the communication itself is what's maintaining that relationship. Now, are you making the calls or is someone making them for you? I only make the inner circle calls, that 100 people a month. And my office is now making those calls to our past clients and center of influence. Back in the day, I used to make all the calls. But now, because of the amount of appointments that I go on, I've had to outsource that to my personal assistant to make those calls for me. And how long ago was that transition? Well, it it took some time. It didn't happen overnight because I wasn't willing to give it up overnight. (laughs) Sure. But uh, I would say I finalized that transition about three years ago. Okay. So for the first 15 years, you were making all the calls. Correct. And it was becoming challenging for me to get through the entire list. And that was what was happening was, is that I was realizing there was no way that I could have enough conversations to keep up with the size of the database. And so some folks weren't getting called necessarily um, every single quarter. They began to get called three times a year instead of four times a year. That lasted about a year where I was like, okay, that's not going to work. I need to be willing to get some of this up. When you were only contacting three times a year, did you see a fall off in business? Nothing stands out when you ask me that question that would make me think that that happened. But I do believe that it could have happened if I would have allowed that to continue. So hitting once a quarter, I wasn't getting into them until that fourth month. You know what I mean? So. I just didn't let it go very long before I addressed it. How did you arrive at four times a year? Did you try to do it once a month or once every six months and that didn't work? It was recommended from one of our real estate trainers that that would be the right approach to doing this. So that's what I did. I said, okay, that's fine. I'm going to go with the recommendation. And because it proved to be true over time, I, I never questioned it again. Who was the trainer? It's uh, Mike Ferry. Yeah, I've heard this concept before, and it seems to be playing out all over in different markets all over the U.S. You know, that's where I got my tapes when I started from day one, too. I listened to a superstar retreat from, you know, mid-90s, I suppose. So I was immersed in in the Mike Ferry program from day one in real estate. That was a good move. You lucked out. It was a great move. (laughs) I did luck out for sure. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about the monthly market update that you're sending out. Is that specific to their property or is it general about the market? What's in there? Well, it's general to the market for Reading, but I'm probably fortunate in comparison to maybe a few of the listeners on your call that our market is relatively the same across that 140,000 people. So we have some people that live in town and subdivisions and some live in the country, but because it's such a small community, it's pretty easy for me to touch on all those areas each month and it not be too much work for me, where if you lived in the greater LA area, you probably have seven, eight, nine, ten different markets that are all performing and all have their own neat and unique attributes. I'm not dealing with that same challenge, so I can do one general market update each month. And what kind of information is included there? We'll talk about what the overall sales were for the previous month, what the inventories are, what that means if you're a buyer, what that means if you're a seller. We'll talk about any topics that are trending, you know, like uh, solar power in California is an obviously a, a big issue. 
people are purchasing it and some of them are people are leasing it. Um, you know, it's fresh in my mind because I just did one on this, but you know, I talked about don't lease the system if you're going to be selling in the next few years because it makes it hard for you to resell the property. So there's just examples that you can do in your market updates each month as well. How big is this? If you were going to mail it out, you said you're mailing and emailing, how many pieces of paper does it fill? Well, I only mail to our local people. I'm not exactly positive how many that is, but it's probably close to 1,800 to 2,000 that we'll mail out to locally. That email market update, we've got well over 20,000 people now in that system. Uh, so this is going out to more than just the people in your past client and sphere of influence group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just anybody that we've had some sort of contact with. We'll give a market update to using that program. And, you know, if, if they know it well, then they keep receiving it. If, you know, if they have their own agents or not interested in the information, then they opt out or unsubscribe or whatever. But right now, I think we're right around 20,000 or so that go out. How long is the report? Is it one page? I try to keep it as short as I can. So, yeah, one page would be certainly what it is. On the market update I put out there, if you went to our website, you could see kind of an example of the stuff I send out. Do you have a call to action in there, or is it just informational? A little bit of both. I mean, I give them access. If I'm talking about foreclosures, I'll, I'll add a line in there. It says, hey, to see all the foreclosures here in Shasta County, click this link to view more. And then, of course, that'll route back to our website on a unique page with just foreclosures on it. If you have more questions about the value of your home, you can check here and that'll send them to a seller evaluation tool. If you have more questions about what we do to market and promote, you can click this button and that'll send them to our website where they can learn more about what we do to market and promote a home. So just just depending on what I'm talking about, I'll give them references that they can access. And all of those do have conversion out of it. You mentioned you're emailing out to more than just this list. You're sending out 20,000. Are you doing the 20,000 emails out of Salesforce? No, I'm not. I, I use a different program for that. It's uh, it's called Hatchbuck. It's similar to like Infusionsoft. Uh, I've used that program before. I was fine with it. I, I didn't have a problem with Infusionsoft. My staff didn't like it at all. Um, it's just a little bit too cumbersome for me. So we went through a program that's very simple. But quite honestly, I wouldn't say I was one of the pioneers, but I was one of the earlier adopters of email marketing. I honestly, I think Constant Contact, which is probably the least expensive that somebody could use, it could still deliver a very similar experience as what we're doing, and it's not a lot of money to do it. Is there anything else that you do with your past client sphere of influence, the big group, the 2,500 over the course of a year, other than the four phone calls and the monthly market update? Are you doing any client events or anything else with those folks? No. Um, no other events, no closing gifts, no client parties, no anything like that. I mean, the only thing that I would say that we put a lot of time and intention on is customer service. I'm absolutely adamant about making sure we deliver the very best quality we can to our clients. And I, you know, and I say that because that's really how you generate past client and center of influence referrals. The better the service we offer to the public, the more business we're going to get in return. So, you know, you're not going to hear about me doing a lot of crazy marketing and stuff like that, because instead of me spending the money in those areas, trying to find new business, I just make sure that we spend a lot of money and time on delivering great service. And in response to that, we get a lot of repeat business. When you say that you're investing a lot of money and time in the customer service, I assume that means that you have a lot of staff that can handle the volume that you're doing. You may have more people than you need and that you're training them really well. Is that true? It is. I mean, I'm always trying to be one more person staff than what we need. My goal is that our team runs at about a 75% output. Um, I don't want anybody redlining every day at work. 
you know, and there's seasons when that happens, you know, there's months when we're running over a hundred escrows at a time and, you know, our staff is burning it pretty hard. And I'm conscious of that though. And I don't like to see our staff running at that speed for too long. Although it might be highly profitable for me, it doesn't mean it's good for our team and it doesn't mean it's good for the client. So for me, I'd rather see people running at about a 75% output all the time. Do you have a lot of seasonality in your market? See, we have season like everybody else, but I mean, we have, you'll have your transactions drop into the 150s in uh, November, December, January. And then in the peak season of closings in June, July, August, we'll have, you know, just under 300. So that's what it looks like and trends up and trends down in between. When you say 150 and 300, do you mean transactions in your market with everybody or your team alone? No, in the market altogether. So in December and January, you'll have roughly 150 homes close in a month. Um, that would be also considered 300 sides, right, for the market. And in the peak selling season, when there's roughly 300 homes closing in a month, that would be 600 sides for the market. We have roughly 4,500 transactions that close here in the county over a calendar year. For the most part, we're right around 10% of transactions that we're involved in. Wow. A 10% market share. That's fantastic. I know people are going to be real curious. Let's dive in and talk about your inner circle. The folks, I think you said 100 people are there. You also mentioned something about mm-hmm. they have their own database. Tell us more about the inner circle. Well, it's just, you know, a list of people that have to serve the public as well. So if like, for example, if I think a lot of your callers might understand this, if you think about a mortgage professional, a mortgage professional has relationships with agents, obviously, but they also have relationships with a lot of consumers and they probably have their own database. And so what we're able to do is communicate with that mortgage professional, ask them who they know that in their database needs our help with buying or selling a property. And our goal would be is that it only generates a transaction for us, but it also could generate a transaction for them. Also could be true for attorneys. You know, if you were to communicate with an attorney, attorneys normally have their database of clients. If you're communicating with an attorney on a normal basis and trying to find out, you know, who they have in their database that needs your services, there's a lot of opportunity for us to provide service to those clients, but also that might turn into a transaction for the attorney as well. Same thing is true for stockbrokers. Same thing is true for CPAs. I mean, really, anybody that has databases are the folks that I really want to make sure we're offering that additional service to because they're coming in contact with the public more frequently than Betty Bob Sue, who doesn't you know, do a lot of things. Let's talk a little bit more about who's in the database. These are folks that have their own databases. For instance, you mentioned a mortgage professional. How many mortgage professionals do you have in the group? And the reason I'm asking that is you're asking them to bring you business. Are then you expected to bring them business back? And if you have more than one, does it get complicated? Well, I think that not everybody's going to be the right fit for every client. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm the right agent for everyone. I would say that's true for a mortgage professional too. But, you know, maybe two or three mortgage professionals at the max, uh, what you'd have in that particular field that might be the same for your CPAs, your stockbrokers you know, uh, financial advisor, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend many more than two or three on each one of those categories. You mentioned attorneys. Are you looking at a certain group of attorneys that work in a certain area? Well, I think it would make sense to talk with like, tax attorneys, uh, probate attorneys, uh, real estate attorneys, divorce attorneys, because obviously assets are liquidated in that situation as well. You know, there's multiple, and that's what I'm saying with an attorney. You could probably have five, six, seven different attorneys based on the unique fields that they represent. How selective are you at picking the people that go into your list? What's your process for deciding whether somebody goes into this inner circle or not? 
whether or not I think there's going to be a reciprocating relationship and whether or not we think we can offer real value to their client. You know, if they have their own relationships and they have no interest in working with us, then I'm not going to waste their time or our time. For those that are open to the conversation, the next step is to find out, you know, is there really a service that we could offer to their clients? Is there a need for it? So I think it's a case-by-case basis with it. You have 100 people in the inner circle. What kind of result is coming back out? You mentioned the overall database of past clients and sphere of influence would be 2,500, roughly getting a 10% return, I think, that on this inner circle group, the 100 folks, what type of transaction volume would you expect to come out of it? Well, that's where the numbers get skewed a little bit because that overall 100 is definitely included in that 2,500 past clients and center of influence. But what I would tell you is that um, what I'm looking for is, are they capable of sending us a referral that it turns into a transaction every single year? Clients, in my opinion, are going to be able to accomplish that. Either it's not in their personality or they don't have that kind of access or they're not proactively out there in the community, you know, talking about those types of things. And so there's numbers of reasons why they won't do it, but they will work with you again when they're ready. Um, And then there's another group that are those connectors. And and those are the folks who, you know, if you're communicating well with them, they're communicating back well with you. You should be able to generate at least a transaction a year from it. When you say one closed referred transaction per year, per person in the inner circle? Okay. So your objective is to get 100 closings out of this inner circle each year. Correct. Yeah. And it's getting more and more challenging as we're doing more transactions, you know, and I suspect this is going to continue to be a trend for us is that I might have somebody call on one of our signs, but they already are in our, our past client center of influence or they're in our, um, you know, that top hundred, but they call on one of our signs, right? So what's the source? You know, is it a <laughs> sign call or, you know, it's challenging now. I mean, now that we've doing more and more business, um, there's so much overlapping that's taking place that I've just got to be real clear on what's not working and get rid of it and continue to do the things that are working. How long have you had this inner circle? Well, I've developed it over the years. So, I, you know, I, I think I got really clear on that particular topic maybe 10 years ago. That's when I started getting really clear with it and saying, okay, hey, you know, I, I need to make sure I'm putting a lot of time and energy into this. For a short period of time, I was doing like a market update where I'd have all these professionals come to me in a building and I would share with them what's going on in the market because in their businesses, it's good for them to have that kind of information too. The problem I realized was I was inviting multiple lenders, multiple tax advisors, multiple attorneys, and instantly it was like, oh crap, all these people see that I have relationships with multiple people in the same field. So I stopped doing it. You know, I I don't know why I didn't recognize that as a problem in the first place, but when I saw them all in the same room, I was like, I've got to stop that. A good lesson. Back 10 years ago, when you started focusing on the inner circle, did you have 100 people in this group? No, not at all. I think I had, I I think when I sat down one time, and I I, I don't remember how many came out of that list, but I sat down essentially and I went through my entire list and said, who are the people that I think can refer a transaction to me each year? And I may have came up at that point 10 years ago with maybe a list of 25 names. And so that's where I started. Well, let's come back to today. Tell us, what are you doing on an annual basis to stay in front of this inner circle? Well, I mean, again, they're getting a call from me once a month. I do try to, when I go out to lunch, these are the folks that I will go to lunch with. I try to get out with them at least once a year. So it's probably every other day I'm out with one of them. And my goal out of that is obviously just to be able to connect. But, you know, some of them I have close relationships with and we're able to hang out anyway. But for those who are, there's no overlap with family or personal interest, that kind of a thing, I just try to make an extra point to get out to lunch with them. Okay, so 
Uh, it sounds like the Inner Circle, they're receiving your monthly market update. They're also receiving a monthly call. And then you may take them out to lunch maybe once a year or more frequent if you know them better, but it may be at least once a year to touch base with them. Is that all of the contact that you're making with them in the course of a year? Yeah, about it. All that in transacting business. So one of the things that getting from that is a referral. So I'm making sure that when we provide amazing service to the client, they refer to us. I want to make sure that client is telling them how grateful they are that he referred or she referred them to us. Ah. And that really helps to solidify that continuing referral relationship. So, you know, Mike, if you were referred to me from an attorney, I would ask you, I'd say, hey, Mike, would you mind doing me a favor? And normally Mike would say yes. And I'd say, Mike, would you mind calling the attorney and let him know what your experience was with our office? And I'll make sure that that call takes place. That way the attorney feels good about the referral that he made or she made. Wow. So you're asking the person who was referred to go back and tell the person Mm -hmm. who referred them that everything's going well. Everything went well. I won't do it during because things can go up and down during transaction. (laughs) But I would say that after the transactions closed, of course, thanking them for the opportunity to serve them and asking them, you know, would you mind doing us a favor? And and almost without exception, they would say yes to that. Wow, that's great. That's a good idea. Tell us about the call that you're making monthly to the inner circle. What's happening during that call? Depends on how close I am with them. So if it's a close friend, I mean, we're talking about whatever's going on in their business. Uh, what are the challenges they're working with? And then I'll finish with asking who they know that we could be helping out to. Um, but I always make the call about them. I mean, there's no reason for us to call anybody and talk about ourselves. So I tell you the one common thread or trend with all of those calls is that I'm asking about them, what's going on in their business, what are they working on, what are their challenges, what can we help them with? And then, of course, who do they know that we should be serving and, and taking care of? I assume that some of those calls are to refer them business. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's going to happen too as, as that opportunity arises. And obviously I'm calling and letting them know this person's going to be giving you a phone call and I've gotten their permission to have you call them. So yeah, that's a connection that takes place as well. Do you also have other real estate service folks in this database? What I mean by that is do you have inspectors or appraisers? or title reps. You mentioned mortgage. Do you have other folks that are in this list that are involved in the real estate transactions? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't say there's as many title people as there is lenders, appraisers, insurance agents, things like that. Now, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search RealGTV. That's R-E-A-L-G dot TV. Now, back to the show. If somebody were going to start up an inner circle list today, what advice would you have for them? Well, they probably already have a list of names, and if they haven't written it down, that's the first step. Sit down make a list of all the people that you come in communication with on a regular basis. Think about all the people that you pay money to to add to that list. Think about anybody that your wife comes in contact with or your husband, whatever that is. Anybody that you guys come in contact with, write that name down. Then the next question would be is, you know, who who in that list, if you did communicate with them more efficiently or more effectively or more frequently, could they refer a transaction to you each year? Get the list first and then go down and figure out who would be the right fit to talk to once a month. Do you have people on your inner circle list 
that do not have their own database, but for whatever reason, they give a lot of referrals to you, like a good friend of yours or past client who just gives a lot of referrals? Yeah. Yeah. I've got a client of ours that's a painter. Um, I'm sure he doesn't have a database. He gets called all the time, but because he's a painter, he's kind of on the leading edge, right? People call to get their house painted sometimes before they even have the agent out. So, um, you know, my name gets shared. I've trained him how to ask them if it's okay for me to call them. And when I've reached out to him each month, he's letting me know who he knows that I should be reaching out to. Is there anything else that you think that we should talk about for past clients and centers of influence and repeat and referrals that we haven't addressed yet? Bottom line, I think, and the only point I would want to drive home is be consistent. Whether you're doing it or someone on your staff doing it, depending on the level that you're at, it just it has to get done. You know, and I, I'm first to tell you, I did it on my own for a long time. At a point, it, the consistency began to get compromised. And as soon as that started happening, I was willing to outsource it. Let's move over to another source of business that you mentioned, and that is Zillow. What are you doing with Zillow that's causing leads to come into your business? Well, we're just listing homes. I think on Zillow, if I remember correctly, I think you get 25 of your most recent listings are promoted on Zillow at any time, right? So when I list property and it goes up for sale on Zillow, it, you know, I, I, at any time, I've already got my name on 25 actual listings on Zillow. The most recent listings, you know, we get a lot of calls that come from that. We do have a small marketing that we do with Zillow as well that partners with a lender. Um, and that also allows us to show up in the search results more frequently with Zillow. But I still think that the one that generates the most business, the fact that we are the listing agent on so many of the homes that those consumers are seeing. Also on the buyer side, I think that's what that's about. On the selling side, when they go to Zillow, obviously they're looking to see what agents look like they're transacting the most business because they're in the process of interviewing. And for me, I'll have over 400 transactions closed in the last 12 months on Zillow at any given time. And because of that, obviously the sellers are going to pick me as being one of maybe several different agents that they're going to interview for the job. Now on the 25 listings that are showing up, do you have any additional promotion that you're doing other than just the fact that Zillow is putting those listings up? Are you enhancing that in any way? Again, we're co-marketing or sponsoring, whatever you call it, with the lender. So we're sharing some additional marketing and exposure that way with Zillow. It's not at the numbers I've heard these other teams across the country at, but but it's modest budget that works for our market. And it would depend on every market, how big or small your market is, the, the fee or how much you spend on advertising is going to change. What percentage of your business is coming from Zillow? Probably close to 20%. The end of last year, it was about 18.5%. So thinking right now, going into spring, the first quarter and a half, it's trended a little higher. So, And that business coming from listing interviews and buyer interviews. I've heard that reviews are important in Zillow. Do you have reviews in Zillow? And are you doing anything to get more? We work on it a little bit. I don't think we're as intentional as we probably should be. Um, I think I've got 100 and something reviews on Zillow, uh, which is very small, by the way. I mean, in comparison, I talk to agents that have three, four, 500 reviews. So, um, you know, I'm a little bit over 100 reviews on Zillow. We're not hammering it, but we are becoming more aware of it. We realize that the consumer now seems like they're pretty engaged in online reviews. So it's time for us to really step it up. Ah, so the 100 reviews that you have sounds like they've just happened organically when somebody was happy with your service. Yeah, I mean, I think we've started, you know, in the last year or so getting more proactive about it, but, you know, we haven't really pushed it hard either. We might say, hey, you know, if you really appreciate it, thanks a lot. And you know, if you don't mind, would you consider jumping on Zillow and giving us a review? 
Um, but we're not rewarding them or asking for it a couple of times. We really haven't gotten that intentional about it yet. For an agent listening that wants to receive more business from Zillow, other than getting more listings and having more exposure, is there anything else that you would recommend they do? Well, I think the reviews is the least expensive thing they could do. That doesn't cost anything to get a review on Zillow. So if you you know, could get out there and have the consumers that you've transacted with be willing to give you guys a good review, then by all means, that's what you should do. It doesn't cost anything to do it. The other option you have is, I mean, for a very modest fee on Zillow, you can promote your listings. And I'm not sure what that fee is, but it's probably a few hundred dollars to get up to 25 listings on Zillow. So list a lot of homes and then listings will be on Zillow and you can generate business from it. You also mentioned you're receiving a lot of sign calls and I think you said it's very close in volume to Zillow. So I'm assuming it's around 18, 20% of the business is coming in that way. Correct. Can you tell us if you're doing anything unique to cause the sign calls to come in? Um, you know, I'm smiling when you say that. I just list a lot of homes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> having a lot of listings in the ground. I mean, for me, at any time between our active listings that are on the market, which today I'm picking at 71 that are active for sale, and I'll have another 50 or 60 in escrow. So between the two, I'll have 125, 135 real estate signs in the ground. Because of the frequency in which people see the signs, it increases the chances of those calls coming in. So I would start by saying I'm probably in a, at a advantage because of the amount of signs I've got. For the average agent, and when I think about that, how would you really be able to quantify the sign? I'd say if you don't have a lot of listings, make sure that you put a lot of directional signs up too, maybe to get extra signs in the ground, you know. But sign calls, in my opinion, are some of the easiest ones to convert. The first thing we ask anybody that calls on a sign is, you know, thank you for calling about XYZ. Which home in the area do you own? Because normally, you know, those calls that initially come in are from the neighbors trying to find out what their neighbor's selling for. That gives you an opportunity to grow your database, but also possibly get another appointment out of it. If the person says, you know, we don't live in the area, but we're interested, then the question is, when would you like to see the home? Training your sales team to be able to convert those calls is extremely important. So you gave us the opening question. Any other important questions that should be asked during that conversation? Every agent, um, and I don't know what your audience they comprise of, so what I would say is that every agent should be well scripted on handling a sign call. When a call comes in, the first question is, again, thank you for calling about XYZ. Which home in the area do you own? Well, we don't own a home in the area. Oh, fantastic. Uh, congratulations. Sounds like you're interested in looking at real estate. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay, well, this home is priced in generally in this price range. When would be a good time for us to show it to you? Immediately, you want to start um, offering to show them the home. doesn't mean you have to right away because they say, sure, let's do it. Then you can ask qualifying questions to make sure you want to keep the appointment. But I think that initially, giving the consumer what they want, which is the information about the home and offering an appointment, is an important part of the process. Now, you mentioned agents should consider putting up directional arrows to their properties. Do you have directional arrows up? We do, but we only do it if we really need it. You know what I mean? What I was suggesting is, is that if you don't have a lot of signs in the ground, one way to get more signs in the ground would be to put additional real estate signs up with directional arrows that point in the appropriate location they need to go. Uh, we don't have a sign problem. So, <laughs> so for me, we put up the amount of signs that are necessary to locate the property. You know, so, but I'm just suggesting that would be a way to do it. I, I can remember a time when I would put up three directionals and it would probably be a bit of an overkill to get to one property just so that I could increase the exposure. You mentioned currently you have around 70 active listings and 50 or 60 in escrow. When the property goes under contract, 
Do you put up some type of sign rider on the sign to indicate what's going on? Not until after all the contingencies are removed from the buyer. So you know, when we first put it under contract, you wouldn't really see a difference on the sign. Once the buyer removes all their contingencies, we'll put up a sold sign on that sign. And uh, you know that helps us for additional marketing and promotion to the neighbor, gives the seller satisfaction that you know their home is sold, they get to brag to their neighbors. So we do do it, but we try to do it after the buyer has removed all their contingencies. On the sign itself, is there anything unique? Does it look just like your standard sign? Do you have reflective material on it? Is it oversized? No, uh, just a regular, you know, Remax vinyl sign. Um, I've got a sign writer on it that provides texting features. If you wanted to text to see the listing online, I have an 800 number on there so you can hear recorded information about the property if you choose to. And all those features obviously have caller ID. So whether the buyer calls on our sign or texts us or listens to the 800 info home line type of recording, either way, we're going to capture their name and their phone number. Do you have flyers on your signs? No. We eliminated the flyer when we offered the texting feature. What percentage of the people are using the text versus the old 800 number, the IVR hotline? I don't know if I have an answer for that. I tell you that it's probably close to half and half. And, and again, I bet that changes based on the market. Up here, where I live, not everything has high LTE website reception. Okay. So some of our consumers, if they're going to get information on that sign quickly without talking to an agent, they have to call the 800 number because you can't get Wi-Fi high enough to pull our landing page. So again, every market's a little different, right? Now, you mentioned that you're putting these properties under contract, getting them sold. Do you do any kind of just listed, just sold notification to the neighbors? No, we'll do circle prospecting. So, you know, when we list a property for sale, we'll let the neighbors know about it, see if they have anybody that can move into the neighborhood. And of course, when do they plan on moving? And when we put a home under contract and it sells, we'll do the same thing. Call in, just want to let you know this property is sold. This is where we're sold it for. Normally when one home sells, usually a few more sell right away. When do you plan on moving? We'll talk to them in the beginning. We'll also talk to them at the end. So you are doing circle prospecting. You're doing that by phone call. Do you mail anything out to the neighbors? No. Is there anything else that you think someone should know about their signs in order to get more sign calls other than taking more listings? Well, I mean, sign calls are all about whether or not the consumer is interested in the sign. So make sure that it's a quality looking sign. I mean, remember, signs that are out there in the marketplace. Those are our business cards. And sure, you probably would agree. I don't know how many times I've driven through a community, whether it be mine or anybody else's, and you see, you know, signs that are completely destroyed or poor condition, don't look good. I mean, that is a representation of yourself and the firm you represent. So not to go off topic, but, you know, a sign is a very simple thing that if you manage it properly, it makes you look like a good agent, right? Sure. And not that that would cause more calls to come in, but I think everybody should be aware of it. The, um, as far as getting more calls from a real estate sign. I, I know how to create more calls than offering a sign number for calling an agent right away, offer the 800 number so they can get you know uh, reported information if they want it, and texting possibilities as well so that pretty much anything a consumer would prefer to do, you're offering. Um, and of course, each one of those has the ability to convert. Do you recall the name of the company you're using for the 1-800 number? I use a company that's called Dialogue Tech. And it's not really out of the box functional for what we're talking about, but you asked the question, so that's the answer. I had their engineers modify it to fit my needs because a lot of the companies would charge 
you know, to have 50 listings or whatever. Um, I don't remember what it was back in the day when I did this, but it was probably 75 to 100 bucks for 50 listings on an 800 info home line, right? And it didn't do some of the stuff I wanted it to do. It just provided the consumer with information and it would send you a notification that it took place. What I ended up doing was having dialogue tech. Back in the day, they were called if by phone. I had them engineer a solution that would allow me to have hundreds of listings at the same price. It didn't cost more. And in addition to that, when the person inquired about the 800 information, it immediately was generating emails to go out to my entire sales team. We had some little bit of front cost in just engineering that solution because nobody had it at the time. They might have it now, but I did that four or five years ago. So how about the text feature? What company are you using there? A company called Simple Texting. For 20 or 25 bucks a month, I have that solution. On the sign itself, the phone number that's listed, is that a direct phone number into your sub-office, into your team? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it goes directly to our sales team. And then same thing with the 800 number, same thing with the texting information. Thank you so much for walking through lead generation. What I'd like to do now is I'd like to turn our attention to your team. Could you describe your team? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, the company's broken down, I would imagine, similar to most. We have our administrative team and we have our sales team. So our administrative team comprises of two closing managers, two listing managers, an office manager, personal assistant to me, and my marketing department, which is one person that does all the photography and you know all the things that have to be done there. So that's the administrative team. The sales team is six buyer's agents that do nothing but show property. And then I've got one assistant listing agent that assists me. And then I still list every day, so I'm, I'm the other salesperson. So a total of seven, and then I'm the eighth salesperson on the team. And I'm sorry, did you mention, do you have an inside sales associate? Yes, yeah, she's actually my personal assistant. But, you know, in my opinion, there's a difference between an ISA and a telemarketer. I mean, a, a telemarketer pretty much only makes outbound calls and, and typically can be fairly low-skilled to do that job. An ISA is somebody that takes inbound and outbound calls. Um, and it's usually got a higher skill set, you know, and in this case, I have a personal assistant that handles, you know, my scheduling and my affairs, but also functions as an ISA for half the day. Who is the ISA calling? She's talking to my past clients in Center of Influence. Okay. She's calling the 2,500 people once a quarter. Correct. Yep. You also mentioned that you have a assistant in the listing side that's helping you. You're doing all the listings and you have one assistant. What is the assistant doing? That assistant will list probably four or five homes in a month and will also work with buyers as well. But that person's trained to be able to handle listings in my absence. I'm really focused around making sure I have redundancy in our sales team. You know, if I'm out of town or I have a conflicting appointment schedule where I couldn't accommodate everybody, then that person would be able to take that listing appointment for me. You're doing a lot of business. What was 153 homes sold last year? That's an incredible volume, over 40 closings a month. Are you taking any vacation? <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah, so I go on vacation. So my work schedule is roughly 255 work days in a year. Could you give us an idea? Are you taking a couple days off a month, a week off a month? What do you think as far as your vacation time is looking like? I personally don't work Sundays. During the spring, I work some Saturdays, and that's because it's not uncommon for me to go on 45 or 50 listing appointments in a single month personally. And that's during 
spring that that happens. That's when a lot of our new listings come to the market, and that's when I have to be on my game, and that's when I'm at my busiest. And so that will friends on Saturdays. It's not uncommon for me to go on a listing appointment or two on a Saturday three times out of a month during the spring. Um, but that ends. By August, I'm back to a five-day work week can take vacations and things like that. But, you know, there's a period of time there where I'm working definitely six days a week, and it's just, it's just part of what I got to do. So you're doing most of the listings. What percentage of the appointments do you go on that you actually list the home? 80%. 80%. Wow, that's really great. Uh, the 20% that aren't listing, why are they not listing? Variety of reasons. They like somebody else better than they like me. They like the price that somebody offered better than, than the one I offered. The uh, commission that they wanted was not the commission that I was willing to work for. And occasionally, I probably at least half of those I turned down myself because I don't think that I can accomplish their goal. You know, so I go out there and they, they're asking for a certain number. I don't think I can deliver on it. And I'm sure most agents can appreciate this. Somebody else has probably told them that they could. And so my response is that I don't believe I can accomplish that goal for you. And, you know, if they think they can, then go hire one of them. So I'm not really attached to the outcome. You mentioned you've got six buyer specialists. It, a lot of people, when they're looking at either bringing on a buyer agent or they already have one, they're very curious about compensation. Would you tell us what your compensation structure is for your buyer specialist? I will tell you this, just because it's probably more relevant to your question. You have to pay your buyer's agents enough that you can attract high-quality talent, that you can retain good talent and that you can reduce your turnover and they can reach the goals that you need them to make as an agent. I think the commission thing, obviously we're not going to be paying our agents huge amounts of money because we're handling all the transactions for them. We're providing the lead flow for them. We're coaching them. We're training them. We're mentoring them. So there's a lot of value they're getting. And in exchange for that, their commission rates go down. But I think, you know, I hear some teams that are offering 35%. I hear some teams offering 50. It's somewhere in there is probably the most appropriate. But, you know, if you're only paying your agent 35%, for example, what you have to ask yourself is that am I getting the best trained agent? Am I offering the highest quality salesperson to the clients that we serve? Are they able to accomplish their personal goals? Can this be a scalable solution for the company going forward? Because a short-term profit for a team leader could turn into a long-term turnover problem if you're not paying them enough. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you for walking us through that. On your personal production, how many closings are you personally doing in a year? You're involved in the business still. How many are you personally closing? Last year, I personally closed just over 220. Wow. That's crazy high. And so you have the back office to help you with the admin, but you're going out on, I assume that most of these are listings. You're going out on all those listings and signing them all up? That's correct. I don't show property anymore or work with any buyers. I mean, I, I suppose I work with a few buyers. By accident, a friend of mine calls me and says, here, write this up. I found a house I want to buy or whatever. But in most cases, I don't do any buyer activity at all. And not because I don't like working with buyers. In fact, I, I did enjoy that very much. It's that um, it's not an activity that I can scale properly. I can't control my day that way. So I'm more focused on the listing side of the business. You know, what our company is, is it's a highly leveraged producer's model, if you will. I haven't listened to all of your recordings that you've done with other agents, but I do know a lot of the people that you have talked to. And um, what I can tell you is that you have the mega agent model where you have a top team leader who's managing a pretty good sized sales team, probably is not in production anymore. Their role is to be a leader 
guide, direct, mentor to coach to do all those things, but they may not be in production anymore. Are you following me with that? Sure. Okay. And, and that's the model and there's nothing wrong with that model. I think that's a great model and you know, there's great things that come from it. Then you have on the other end of the spectrum, you have the individual agent, which might be a lot of the people listening to your call. And these are the agents that are getting into the business. They might have an assistant and they're really trying to figure out, you know, how to get to the next level in terms of production. Okay. Um, and so you have the agent that's doing individual business and, and they're producers. They're, they're out producing every day. And I kind of sit in between those two worlds. I'm a highly leveraged producer's model. So I'm still in the business every day. I'm still prospecting, if you will. I'm still doing lead follow-up. I'm still making presentations. I'm not negotiating as many contracts as I used to, but I'm still negotiating contracts. And I'm still supervising the overall closing process for the company. But I'm still out in the field every day doing my job. So what I just said to you will turn off all the major team leaders who don't sell anymore. <laughs> they, don't, they don't like to hear that, right? And the producer model, the guys that are newer in the business, they don't like to hear about teams because they don't run a team yet. Um, so I'm that guy in the middle that nobody likes. Um, but, the reason, <laughs> but the reason why I do it is, is really simple. I have my finger on the pulse of the market. It works well where we're at. I'm still young enough, 41, that I have the energy to go out and produce every day. So, you know, for me, um, I don't mind working as hard as I am. But the last thing and the one that really causes me to stay in this role is the cost of sale. You know, when I go out on a listing appointment, I don't have to pay another agent to list that home. And so on average, I'm netting either between 50 and 60% more for that property. You get what I'm saying? Sure. Because cost of sale, the commission you're paying another agent, you know, that's a factor in the overall structure of the company. So a mega team agent, they're paying out commissions on 100% of the transactions they're doing. So what that net outcome is to them, although I'm sure it's very satisfying, you know, in, in exchange for what they're putting into the business, they might be very happy with it. In, in my world, where I'm at right now, I'm not as happy with it. And we're a small market. So for me to scale like some of the larger markets can, I don't believe it's possible. And I might be ignorant to say that, but I just don't see it being as possible. So, um, so there you go. That's the reason why I do it the way we do it. You got the hybrid model going there. And the reason that yep. you're doing that and staying in production is the profitability on those transactions that you are touching is super, super Correct. high. And then you're blending that out with the other transactions that are coming in through your team. And I assume for an mm -hmm. overall profitability that's higher. And so I'll just go ahead and go right to that question right now because it, it seems appropriate. Are you profitable? Very profitable. And would you mind disclosing to us what your net profit margin is? Well, for last year and not factoring in for buildings and stuff like that, that I have, and, you know, because I own the buildings, there's some manipulations with leases and things. But if I were to be really just uh, giving you a blanket number, it would be about 52% profitability is what the company ran at last year at the end of the year. Wow. Well, that's pretty good. So $100 comes in the top of the organization, $52 of that will come out the bottom and go home with you. Correct. And that's the blended amount. That's your production and the team's production. You're exactly right. That's accounting for our agents as well as myself. And that covers all the overhead and staff. That's a pretty nice profit margin at the end there. Nice job. Thank you. Let's talk about that personal production side. You mentioned you're really leveraging up your personal production. I'd like to get into a couple of those details. Sounds like you're currently still prospecting. As far as these listings, you're mm -hmm. still prospecting. You're still doing lead follow-up. 
although you've leveraged some of that prospecting, right? Some of the database is now being called by your assistant, your ISA, but you're making those uh, core 100 calls. You're doing lead follow-up, I assume, with the real hot folks, and then you're doing the presentation. My vision is that after you take that listing, your team steps in and starts to handle everything, marketing that listing all the way up through contract. And I think you've taken the next step, which is you have someone that's negotiating the contract now as well. Is that true? That's true for probably 50% of our contracts are negotiated by my, uh, by my staff, 50% by me. I assume they're licensed. They've got a lot of experience in this. They'll do a great job. And that's where you're getting a little more leverage. And then Correct. I assume that like most markets, you have an inspection and there's a second negotiation that happens there. Is there somebody handling that negotiation? Our escrow closing manager takes care of the request for repair negotiation, and unless it turns into a problem, and then it comes to me. But uh, I would say nine out of ten are not a problem, and I don't have to get involved. And then again, every market's different, and I'm not as familiar as I should be. You're in an escrow market. Do you need to show up at the end for some type of closing? And if so, do you? I do not, and I have never had to. Okay. Your market, that's just not a tradition. But if it was, I assume you would try to have somebody go. Well, I don't know if you would have somebody go there or not to wrap up the transaction because of referrals. If it was required in our area or state, or even if it, for that matter, if it was standard practice for our area, I would have somebody accommodate that signing. I'm sure it would not have been me. So you're leveraging even inside of your listing process. Uh, you're doing the hardcore part, the, the prospect lead follow-up and presentation because that's where you can make the most influence. And then you're having a lot of help in the other parts to leverage up your time. And that's how you're able to achieve that 220 closings on the listing side per year. That's pretty incredible. Thank you for sharing. Sure. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, you described it exactly the way that it works. Anything that can be handled by an administrative staff person, I want to make sure that we're able to outsource that quickly. My job is to truly be on as many listing presentations as possible. I mean, even our prospecting now, I used to prospect five, six hours a day. And then over the years, it dropped as appointments began to encroach on that prospecting time. So now I'm down to below an hour a day, which is what's necessary for me to be able to accomplish our prospecting goals and at the same time be able to be on the appointments I need to be on. It sounds like the highest and best use of your time currently is in the presentation and getting folks to sign up your company. Correct. You've got someone else who fills in for you. Have you ever tried to have someone else do the presentation side, and how'd that work? It worked good. <laughs> There's a story behind the story there, but several years ago, I brought this particular agent in. I trained him up on what needs to be done. They did well. Was, I don't know. I think it was somewhere between 35 and 50 homes in that particular year. Then that agent left, and so last year, I didn't have that redundancy that I wanted. So I just ran the whole year as far as I possibly could and didn't worry about it. You know, at the beginning of this year, that same agent came back after realizing that they worked a little better in our system than working on their own system. So came back and we're building them back up again to do the same thing for me. So I do see the future of the company because I'm, for the most part, tapped out. I don't see where I'm going to be able to create a lot more time, go on more presentations. So the company now is beginning to train agents to begin to do some of those additional appointments with me. And just like with what happened with me with our past clients and center of influence, I think there's going to be a natural progression. We're slowly over time. The company will do more and more listing presentations. And, you know, when I want to, I will slowly back out of that and back out of the number of presentations that I go on. 
But for now, this year, next year, I don't see any of it changing. Well, Josh, what drives you? Well, you know, I think it's different, different times in my life. And right now, I'm driven by my uh, relationship with the Lord, my family, you know, providing great service for our clients. I want to be able to look back on my life and know that I gave everything the best that I could. You know, not that we're perfect people, and but I do want to be able to look back and say, you know what, I, I, I was never a sandbagger in, in this period in my life. I never not tried my best to do the best I could for people in this period of my life. I live a life where I want to make sure I, I know that I've done everything that I can, that I've left everything I possibly can on the table, that if I win or lose, I know that I've done everything that I could do to, you know, have a positive impact on people. So, you know, I guess that's what drives me. I, maybe the, what drives me is the fear of not being that person. Well, Josh, why have you been so successful? Well, thank you for the compliment. I think success is a progressive result. I don't think that you ever are, quote unquote, successful unless you're progressively getting better at something. So I think everybody, whether you're listed at home yesterday for the first time or, you know, you're listing several hundred in a year or whatever, I think just getting better and trying to serve the public and be focused on taking care of people, that is success. And the numbers can change over time. I mean, what we're doing today in real estate may look good to some people from the outside, but who's to say that 20 years from now, they look back at what we're doing today and go, gosh, that was easy. (laughs) You know know what I mean? So who knows? When that guy broke the minute mile or whatever that was, I mean, I would imagine prior to that, everybody thought it was impossible. Then he broke it and everybody realized it was possible, right? True. You know, and so in our industry, success, what is that? I mean, it, Success is just getting better at life. If you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? Man, I recommend getting with a good mentor. I don't regret for a second meeting Mike Perry and being involved in that program. And I'm not saying that's everyone's answer for what they need to do, but it worked good for me. I was already very disciplined and structured. And the system that Mike Perry offered me was very disciplined and structured as well. So it was a natural fit. But there's other trainers too. And so I would say partner with someone that will be able to guide you and direct you in the direction that you want to go and be willing to commit 110% to the process of getting better and learning and stay consistent. There's ups and downs in life. There's ups and downs in business. But in my view is that if you're willing to give it 110% every day, the accumulation effect over time is that you'll exceed probably every goal you've ever had. Josh, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Of course. And, you know, I think that any time that we're able to learn from people that have been there before us, it offers, I think somebody has said, I don't remember who it was, I don't mean to be robbing somebody's quote, but, you know, success, you know, leads clues. I've heard multiple agents talk about that. And I think that's true. I think that if you looked at our model, you may not be interested in a lot of what we do, but if there's a few things that we do right that you like, then you adopt them and put them into your business. And I think that's true for all of the companies that are out there that are teams that are doing good things is you just get exposed, you know, get exposed to people that are doing big things and, and take away what you think would fit in your organization. Well, Josh, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? No, other than thank you. Thank you very much for being willing to develop a program like this where you can get out there and I know that we're all going to benefit from learning from each other. So, you know, I just would like to finish by saying thank you very much for what you do, Mike. And I encourage all of those guys and gals out there that are out there in real estate, keep prospecting. Well, Josh, thank you for sharing your wisdom and insight. You perfected the highly leveraged producer's model 
hybrid team approach and shared your insights into why it's such a profitable solution. You found a successful prospecting model early in your career and consistently worked, adjusted, and perfected it. You've grown and excelled by mastering the basic high-dollar productive activities like listing homes and leverage the administration with a capable team. I can't wait to see where you take your business from here. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who sold 271 homes last year by applying new home marketing to resell homes. Find out who he is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television, and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.